Is life so dear or peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery? Forbid it, almighty God. I know what course, not what course others may take, but as for me, give me liberty or give me death. Patrick Henry. Thank you for joining me here on episode, what I think, 16 of my semi-frequent but and never conveniently scheduled, sometimes uh, with a bad internet connection, Freedom is Scary live stream. Now, Freedom is Scary, uh, somewhere between 1775 and 1776, since Patrick Henry, some of us have forgotten the concept that of freedom and its connection with liberty. We now refer to those people as the Karens. But I assure you that the elderly folks have been at it for much longer. And if I learned one thing in the process of obtaining my degree, my undergraduate degree in political science, it was that old people or elderly people vote. They vote every time. Old Er, voters love safety and security issues. They love to feel safe. They love safety laws. And now we have over 5,000 federal criminal laws, and we have thousands more of state laws in every state. Um, so everything is illegal at this point. Even certain ideas are illegal in 2020 America. You want to carry a gun and not get hassled or not even get shot at by the police? Then you have to be okay with everybody being able to do the same thing because freedom is scary. You want police to knock and announce their presence before entering your home, before busting through the door of a home with a warrant, then you have to fight against them being able to do that to other people because freedom is scary. It's not safe, it's scary. That's being sarcastic, of course, because it shouldn't scare us per se, but it makes, because it makes us safer in reality. As there are now new gun-owning Americans all across the country, and as they now know, the safety of our families is in our own hands. It rests with us. You can't depend on the government to protect you. We all know that now. More freedom for the American individual, in my opinion, is always the answer. Not more laws, not more jails, not more prisons, not more police even, but more freedom. And it was supposed to be that way from day one. Um, I quoted Patrick Henry. Patrick Henry would have been, I believe, a meme factory, so to speak, if he had lived today. At one time, he said about gun ownership and the population, are we at last brought to such a humiliating and debasing degradation that we cannot be trusted with arms for our own defense? From the very beginning, it was our country was never designed to have the government protect us, but for us to defend ourselves, and with defending ourselves comes freedom. People, you know, and people are stealing your stuff. Well, legalize the use of deadly force in defense of property. That will stop it, guaranteed. Pe innocent people are getting killed. Allow those innocent people to protect themselves with deadly force as they were intended to do from the beginning. That will stop it. That's been the way of the world. Hell, that's been the way of the animal kingdom. Like Charlie Daniels once said, the good book says it so I know it's the truth. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Better watch where you're going. Remember where you've been. That's the way I see it. I'm a simple man. 
the knock and announce laws is what I'm discussing here. And those have been in the news recently because of the Breonna Taylor case. Before that, it seemed to me that people weren't really interested in the knock and announce laws. But that's been something that's been on my radar for some time. And I've litigated knock and announce laws here in West Virginia. And uh, I, I have some, some maybe surprising law and surprising case law that you may not know about. So it, the question is, is when can law enforcement knock dispense with the requirement to knock and announce before they enter a home with a search warrant? Or I guess I should back up and say, can they do that? You know, I had a case back in, I can't recall how long ago it was. It's been a few years now that I represented an elderly gentleman who lived up in the, really a part of West Virginia. I, I don't know that I've ever really been there because when you litigate these cases in federal court, you don't usually go to these small counties unless you have some reason to go to a scene or something like that. But I litigated a case, civil rights case out of, it happened in Doddridge County, West Virginia, where an elderly man was sitting on the couch of his living room watching TV with no idea it was about to happen and busted the West Virginia State Police's SWAT team for the northern half of the state. I believe it was like 24 guys in total. They had snipers, at least one dog. I don't know how many dogs, the whole bit. First few guys literally had machine guns, um, fully automatic Colt M4. Uh, I believe the first guy had went right into the, you know at the guy's face, pointed at him, ordering him down on the ground. On the ground, he starts having trouble breathing. He's handcuffed after that. He's having trouble breathing. He asks for the handcuffs to be taken off. Police officer says no. I later asked that police officer during his uh, deposition, why why wouldn't you take this the handcuffs off this elderly man who's in bad health? Um, he's saying he can't breathe. Why not just take the handcuffs off? You know what the answer was? It was something to the effect of, well, we were in a kitchen and you know there were sharp knives in there. He could have grabbed a knife and killed me. Mind you, this police officer was wearing body armor, the full full kit. And the man he had in handcuffs was just the owner of the house. He wasn't alleged to have committed any crime. He wasn't under arrest. There was no arrest warrant. They were just looking for some other guy who used to work for him at one time. And they figured that since that guy was pretty dangerous just in case this guy is hiding him, well, we better not knock. We better just go in. The result of that case is that we we were able to, to get a financial settlement, but it was also that every single police, not every single police officer per se, but every single state police officer had to get trained in the fact that there is a knock and announce requirement. It's federal constitutional law. And out of all the SWAT team members that I had deposed in that case, I don't believe one of them 
admitted to ever knowing that there was a requirement to knock and announce before you enter someone's home on a search warrant entry. They'd never seen one in their entire law enforcement careers, never seen uh, a no-knock warrant, didn't know anything about it. And that was bizarre. And I, I look into it further. I, I can't find any other police officer in the entire state of West Virginia who has, who has seen a no-knock warrant. You'll hear about no-knock warrants on national news. You'll read about them in United States Supreme Court case law, but you won't find them in West Virginia. And I don't know that I've still seen one in West Virginia, but that was that was really the case that got me interested into to no-knock warrants, so-called no-knock warrants. Really what we're talking about is what's the what's called the knock and announce requirement under federal constitutional law. Hopefully my internet is working. I tried hardwiring it this time, though it doesn't technically show it's going any faster, maybe it'll be more stable. This is probably the the last time if it if it if it cuts out or doesn't work, I'll have to just use my other office in Lewisburg. Uh, which has 10 times faster internet, but it's less convenient because I'm not there as much as I am here. All right. Thanks, Jeff. Uh, video audio is good. All right. So if, if it breaks up or something, let me know because I can't see on my end, my end just looks perfectly normal. So I, it looks to me like it's going well after the whole thing is over. Even if I went for an hour and a half, I go back and look, and all oh, hell, it's it's breaking up. So had I seen it breaking up, maybe I would have uh, just cut the damn thing off. So anyways, what we're talking about here is a search and seizure law in the United States. This is federal constitutional law. Where in the Constitution? We're talking about the Fourth Amendment, of course. So the Constitution says in the Fourth Amendment that there will be no searches and seizures without a warrant. So if you're talking about your home, if there's no warrant, the federal law is that any entry by law enforcement is presumptively illegal. Searches and seizures which take place in a person's home are presumptively unreasonable and therefore illegal by default, according to the Fourth Amendment. That's federal law. On the other hand, outside a person's home, you only get these Fourth Amendment protections where courts have said that you have a, quote, reasonable expectation of privacy. And your home is different. Inside home, by default, presumptively unconstitutional unless there's a warrant. Outside your home, we have all sorts of case law on when you have a reasonable expectation of privacy. Do you have it in your car? Do you have it in your car when you're sitting there? Do you have it in your car when you're driving? you have it when you're walking down the side of the road? Do you have it when you're sitting in a, your accountant's office? And uh, do you have it when you're walking through Walmart? So there's all sorts. Of, do you have it in, res, in respect to your uh, GPS information? There's all sorts of cases on there outside the home. But what we're talking about is inside the home. And that is the basic rule. If no warrant, then you have unconstitutional conduct. If you do have a warrant, then it is usually uh, constitutional. Then you look to 
the manner in which either the warrant was obtained or in which the manner, the manner in which the warrant was executed, which is when you start talking about no-knock warrants. So just briefly places outside the home where the courts have found that you're not protected. For instance, the trash outside your house, uh, even bank accounts, the open fields around your house, which really is important in West Virginia because a lot of us have open fields around our house. And uh, basically the areas surrounding your home. So the searches of a home require a warrant or a valid exception. So law enforcement may enter a home without a warrant if they have an objectively objectively reasonable basis for believing that there's some sort of emergency. So someone inside is seriously injured or imminently threatened with injury. This is known as exigent circumstances. And it's basically an emergency situation. The need to protect uh, or preserve life or avoid serious injury or death is justification under the law for what would usually be illegal and unreasonable because there's no warrant. This is what allows police officers to go in a house, for instance, when it's a domestic domestic violence situation. If an occupant of the house has called 911 um, or is asking for help, or there's, there's some sort of a fact scenario that indicates that to an officer. Maybe it's just a 911 dispatch call that's wrong. Those are all exigent circumstances case, that there's some sort of emergency. Um, it's still, it also can be used under some, some circumstances if a police officer thinks, or if he knows that there's evidence inside that house that is going to be, or probably will be destroyed if they don't go in right then there and do it. And those get more complicated there. You have a whole lot more cases to look at, and that's not really what we're talking about here. So search of a home, which just means entry of a home, really. And I've actually gone through the definition of search. I've had a jury instruction for the word search before, and you, there is a definition of it. But for the purposes of the Constitution, when law enforcement enter, they cross over that threshold to go inside the door, inside the home, that then is, you could call it a a fourth amendment moment. You could call it a search and seizure. You could call it a search, whatever the case may be. You have a, a triggering of the fourth amendment once that threshold is crossed. And some of these, another thing to point out is when we're talking about police officers making decisions, say they think that there is an emergency it's it's judged objectively so it's an objective rule it's an objective standard therefore if if uh, a particular police officer knew he knew that it wasn't an emergency he still or his lawyers could still prove that exigent circumstances apply because it's not specifically what he knew or what he believed or if he misunderstood it's what the regular, objective, reasonable police officer seeing what this guy saw or hearing what this guy heard would have, would have known. So if this particular officer, he actually knows this person and has some sort of malicious intention based on 
prior interaction or something like that. Um, for instance, I've had a case where a search and seizure occurred by a police officer against a guy who was having an affair with his wife. Now, that's an interesting fact to have in a search and seizure case. But you know what? Unfortunately, it wasn't necessarily admissible because it doesn't go to the standard. Well, you, you fight over it anyways, but it's, it's an objective standard, not a subjective one. When you're talking about civil rights, the analysis under the Fourth Amendment of, of what your search and seizure rights are. By the way, excessive force is also falls under the Fourth Amendment. So if you, if you get beat up unnecessarily by police or shot unnecessarily by police, that's all Fourth Amendment. Excessive force is under the Fourth Amendment. Now, this is this is a different video, but when, when, once you're an arrestee and you're sitting in jail, um, at some point, it's not the Fourth Amendment. It is the Fourteenth Amendment. You don't need to know that right now. Or if you're a prisoner, you've already been convicted. It's not under the Fourth Amendment. Now you're under the Eighth Amendment, which is um, a completely different video. But Back to the search and seizure requirements. Uh, let's see. So it's still a requirement, even if police officers get a warrant and they're coming to your house, they still, you still can attack the constitutionality of a search with a search warrant. And there's a couple of ways, really, you have to look at the, the warrant application. Did the police officers tell the truth when they made their search warrant applications? So if it's discovered that false information was intentionally provided to the judge who signed the search warrant, which is usually in West Virginia, just a magistrate judge, the warrant itself is basically fraudulent and therefore it's an ineffective warrant, at which point you're back to the scenario of basically there is no search warrant, therefore it's presumptively unreasonable. So you don't want intentional lies. And if you can prove that police officers intentionally lied to get a warrant, that warrant is thrown out. It, it, it's like it didn't exist. I had a case like that as well recently where a federal judge found that police officers lied to the magistrate to get a search warrant. They still found heroin inside the house, but it's not, uh, it was, it, it was somewhere between a guess and, and, and misinformation provided to the magistrate when the details were sorted out. Um, they didn't, the judge found that they didn't actually do what they said they did in the warrant or they, and they didn't know what they said they knew. They thought they knew it, but they didn't quite know it. And they, they weren't honest about that to the judge, according to this federal judge. So we filed a civil lawsuit in that case. We did end up settling. Um, and, uh, and the criminal charges were all thrown out. So if you can find lies, intentional lies in a warrant, that is one way of both defending a criminal case and prosecuting a subsequent civil case. But it's pretty rare. I think that might be really the only time I've seen that actually happen. I think I've filed other cases and alleged it, but I don't know that I've ever really seen it um, Put, on, put in black and white by a, a federal judge before. That was pretty rare. 
uh, I get this question a lot is when a search warrant is, so where I was going next is if a warrant, even if you can't attack the validity of the warrant, you can still attack how the warrant was executed. And that's where we get to the knock and announce requirement. So during a search warrant execution, can they handcuff the people who are in the house? Does it matter if there also is an arrest warrant or if they are believed to have committed a crime or if they're just innocent bystanders who happen to be in the house? Well, I can answer that question. I get asked that question a lot. The fact is, is that the law is very clear that police officers can temporarily seize and detain the inhabitants of a structure that they're searching pursuant to a search warrant. And they can handcuff them. Now, there's quite a bit of case law out there describing the limits of doing so. How long is too long to keep people handcuffed in their home while you search their home? It is, I, it is probably highly dependent on the federal circuit that you're in. There are a lot of Fourth Circuit cases that have to do with really the terrorism period during the George W. Bush administration where they're you know, the FBI or whatever the case may be is searching homes of people thought to have been communicating with terrorists or involved in, with terrorism in like Northern Virginia. I mean, there's, I, I think that's one of the big cases that are out of the, the fourth circuit, but basically they can handcuff you. And when I had the case involving the elderly gentleman who was basically scared to death and that's, that's what had happened to him. He couldn't breathe going back to that case. He couldn't breathe. He was in handcuffs. And he ended up dying. And the it was a complicated report as far as you know the, the medical cause of death. But my takeaway from it, it was a very sad case. My takeaway from it is basically they had scared him to death. I mean, he wasn't going to just, he's sitting on his couch watching TV. He wasn't just going to die anyways that night. It was caused by the trauma, a traumatic event. And and really what traumatic event occurred, police officers busted in and SWAT team gear and with machine guns pointed, pointed in his face. And, you know, he, he, according to the officer's testimony, he, he, he complied, um, or, or, uh, you know, they had to put him on the floor or something like that, but, but he got up and he was compliant, but he was just handcuffed. So, um, you know, he started having trouble breathing and he died shortly thereafter. They had the, the ambulance crew down the road and they did, in fact, they did, in fact, call them at some point, but he never made his way off of the floor. And, uh, you know, for a couple hours while they processed the crime scene, he's laying there right on, right on the floor where he died. And again, this man wasn't alleged to have committed any crime. But there's no doubt that the situation where a lawful warrant was being executed created enough trauma or turbulence that, you know, his pre-existing medical condition, and he wasn't in good shape, he was in bad shape, um, you know, caused him to just have this event where he stopped breathing. Now, they had a lawful warrant. There was no way to attack the warrant. So when I looked at everything, the only thing I was I was able to find that we might be able to do something about is it looked like every officer in their in their statement 
because where you have a death, generally you have all sorts of statements provided. None of them mentioned anything about knocking, you know, and they inferred that they entered without knocking. So I filed a wrongful death case and alleged a civil rights violation that was violating the knock and announce rule. And it wasn't really until I took their depositions that they, I got to ask them and they admitted that they did not knock and announce. They just entered and they didn't get a knock, no knock warrant or a so-called no knock warrant from the judge, from the magistrate. Why? I don't know. I've never seen one. No one ever told me we had to get one. That was basically, I'm paraphrasing, basically the answer that they all had. And, you know, I would say, didn't, haven't you seen on TV and the news discussion about no knock warrants and, and whether they're a good idea? No, no. Well, maybe I saw one in a federal case one time. I'm not sure. That was basically it. And you really couldn't find any West Virginia prior cases or West Virginia state law or state cases having anything to do with no-knock warrants. I don't know that they, they existed at all. So that, that was really my first time dealing with them. But yes, there is a federal knock-and-announce requirement for police officers. And a judge can grant... And, and this is, there, there's Supreme Court case law and uh, on this. And there's also, there's also a lot of, of circuit case law. And here in the Fourth Circuit, I'll, I'll tell you a case that's really good on this uh, that provides a lot of information. But there is a knock and announce requirement in sufficient, with sufficient allegations, a judge can, can make that a no knock warrant where they can dispense with the knock and announce requirement. Or we go back now to exigent circumstances. If they're confronted on the scene with exigent circumstances, they can also enter without knocking, but they have to be able to articulate why. And I'll get to that. And again, this is what came up in the Brianna Taylor case. Apparently, there was a no-knock warrant issued there, but according to the, the reports that I've seen, they did actually knock and announce. So that's not really, not really, um, it's not really the same sort of situation. I don't know why they would get a knock, a no-knock warrant, and then knock. Because to get a no-knock warrant, you have to go to the judge and say, look, this is too dangerous to knock. Because, and I'll get to what, what, what you have to say, but I'm not sure why they, they would make those allegations under oath and then, then get there and knock. Unless you were confronted with, with some reason that caused you to change your mind, that it was safer to knock. But apparently this one didn't go well. So there's a very good Fourth Circuit case. If you're in the Fourth Circuit... West Virginia, Virginia, Maryland, North Carolina, South Carolina, called Bilot v. Edwards. It was a 2011 case uh, from the Fourth Circuit written by Judge Wilkinson. And it's a really interesting case because the issue was, is can the police get a no-knock warrant just because the homeowner has a concealed carry permit? 
So we know what the, the police would do if you let them, generally. If you have a concealed weapon permit, logic dictates that you have a firearm or firearms in your home. And where firearms are present, if you've read police reports, you, you'll you'll see uh, all sorts of references to training, um, you know, when firearms are present, you know, in, in at the scene or, or in a car or, or at home, you know, basically when firearms are present, it's hard, it's very easy to get shot by police. So they were using this logic to get the no knock warrant to begin with. So they didn't take any more specific facts to the judge to get the no knock warrant. than we believe that there are firearms in the house because one, he's charged with the underlying charge, which was a child pornography charge. It wasn't, it wasn't armed robbery or any physical violence. It was a possession of child pornography charge, coupled with the fact that the homeowner had a concealed weapon permit. So this was the issue before the Fourth Circuit. And they reiterate the fact that before forcibly entering a residence, police officers still have to knock and announce on the door announcing their identity and their purpose prior to entering. Uh, the court also stated that no-knock entries may still be reasonable by virtue of exigent circumstances. So in order to justify a no-knock entry, the police must have a reasonable suspicion that knocking and announcing their presence under these particular circumstances would be dangerous or futile or that it would inhibit the effective investigation of the crime for example, by allowing the destruction of evidence. Though the the significant thing is that it has to be particular, par, this is a difficult word, particularized, it has to be a particularized basis for suspicion. It can't just be a broad allegation that this is a high crime area or that um, this, this person has a, a um, or that, that it, there generally could be firearms where, for instance, drugs are found, something like that. Now, they did have a somewhat particular, particularized allegation in this case, and that was that this particular homeowner had a concealed weapon permit. So it was somewhere in between that it was particular to this home, but it, it, it was also sort of speculating that just because somebody has a concealed weapon permit that they might murder the police with their guns. And this is, this is a completely flawed argument, which gets made, it's get, it gets used all the time. And sort of, I, I just gave the example of the guy who was dying in the kitchen because he couldn't breathe. Well, he's not allowed out of his handcuffs because we're speculating that he would murder police officers with a kitchen knife if let out of his handcuff, even though, he hadn't committed any crime, wasn't alleged to have uh, committed any crime. He's just um, going to up and murder police officers out of nowhere. So that sort of flawed logic gets used all the time in our criminal justice system. The Balot v. Edwards court from 2011, Judge Wilkinson cited a couple of other cases which were pretty good at illustrating what kind of facts are enough to amount to, to uh, exigent circumstances or dangerous situation enough where 
police can dispense with the knock and announce requirement. One was called United States versus Groggins from 1998, another Fourth Circuit case. And in that case, the subject of the investigation had a violent history of shootouts, managing drug operations, and intimidating people by firing weapons into their homes. He even made a chilling declaration that, quote, he was not going back to jail and that he would do whatever was necessary to avoid it. So that is a good example for a situation where no-knock warrants have been found to have been uh, justified. So is your case like that or is your case you know, not like that? And that's really the analysis that a court reviewing it would take. United States versus Singleton was another one, another Fourth Circuit case from 2006. Um, in that case, police argued that the knock and announce requirement should be excused um, because of generalizations about the inherent violence of drug dealers, because also of multiple previous firearms offense arrests and for a previous arrest for second degree murder and being in a location as a known as an open air drug market. Now that was somewhere in between the first guy and, and, uh, what you'll hopefully confront in real life. But so that was not really particularized to this individual, but he was in a bad category of, of persons. So, so we had, um, Somebody was known to have been a drug dealer, somebody who had already been arrested previously for second degree murder and was in a location which could be established as basically an open air drug market. So that wasn't particularized as really it should be, um, but they did allow it because they found that in that case that officers had reasonably relied in good faith on the search warrant that they obtained, which did give them the authorization to make a no-knock entry. So the interesting thing about that is that the court is saying that even if you get a no-knock warrant, even if the warrant is successfully obtained and it says that you don't have to knock and announce, the requirement is still there. So just because it says you don't knock and announce, maybe you want to knock and announce. Maybe that's what, what they did in the Breonna Taylor case. But the court continued is even in the absence of a no-knock warrant, the police officer still has the authority to exercise their independent judgment and their wisdom of whether or not to make a no-knock entry at the time they're executing the warrant based on what's in front of them. So there's a strong preference for warrants, but they will give a lot of consideration to what the police officers say that they that they faced at the time. And that's, again, the exigent circumstances analysis. So one of the things that came up before in my other case was, is if you know of reasons of why this might be a dangerous entry, you bring it up before, at the time you get the warrant and you get the no-knock authorization in the warrant. Now, if there was something else that you didn't know that you're confronted with at the scene, 
you still can do it, even even if you didn't get a no knock warrant. But you got to be able to articulate what you saw that was that you didn't know going into the the, the situation. Because if you knew about it ahead of time, then you should have told it to the judge and gotten a no-knock entry um, authorization. So it can't just be criminal history, for instance, or 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 um, or prior encounters with this individual. It's got to be something that the police officer saw at the scene, such as you know they peeked in the window and they saw. They saw, you know, somebody already, already with a gun doing something. I mean, it, it had to be something that they saw that looked appeared to them to be dangerous, because if it's just facts that they knew ahead of time, then they should have gotten a no-knock warrant. Going, looking back at the Balot case, some of the language that they used, which I thought was good, was the court said that to permit a no-knock entry on the facts of that case would be like to regularize the practice, which is basically what they were doing here in West Virginia before I sued them. Our cases, they, this is the Fourth Circuit speaking, our cases allow officers the latitude to affect dynamic entries when their safety is at stake, but the Fourth Amendment does not regard as reasonable an entry with echoes, however faint, of the totalitarian state. So that's some strong language from the Fourth Circuit on the fact that there is a knock and announce requirement in the Fourth Circuit, as there is in, in every circuit, but it, it's it's being strongly enforced, or at least it was at the time of that case. And they give a great quotation for criminal defense lawyers or for civil civil rights lawyers to use in cases, comparing government making no-knock entries was something that a totalitarian state would do. And isn't that exactly what totalitarian states do? I mean, you watch, don't mean to make too many Hitler comparisons, but you watch, you know, the, 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 the movie based on the diary of Anne Frank or read the diary of Anne Frank. And it's always anxiety about everything goes quiet when, they hear the Gestapo driving down the street. And in other Holocaust movies, you know, they drive down the street, everything gets quiet, and they look out of the windows to see which house they're going into. So that is something that tyrants and dictators do, is they enter and they, they bust down the door, and who knows what they do inside. But we want to be less like a totalitarian state, not more like a totalitarian state. Um, the officers in the Balot case asserted that there was a reasonable suspicion of danger to themselves and to the homeowners themselves because both Mr. and Mrs. Mrs. Balot had concealed carry permits. Isn't, isn't that just something that police like to do? There's a reasonable suspicion of danger to us and to themselves because they both have concealed carry permits. Now, what's the logic in that? So because the homeowner has a concealed carry permit, there's a reasonable suspicion that they're a danger to themselves. Okay, so 
According to the officers, homeowners with these permits, quote, might have handguns readily accessible to them. They actually put that in their brief. So they said a combination of readily accessible handguns combined with the suspect being involved in possession of child pornography is and can create, quote, the potential for a perfect storm of violence. Now, how's that for, for a dramatic sentence? <clears throat> but the court shot them down on this, instructing them and teaching them what they should have known already, that carrying a concealed weapon pursuant to a valid concealed carry permit is a lawful act. The officers admitted at oral argument, moreover, that most people in West Virginia have guns. And again, this was a West Virginia case, but that's some great, great case law, great sentence out of a, um, a West Virginia Fourth Circuit case. And the officer's lawyers admitted at oral argument. And I wonder who saw that coming for the, the lawyers that are preparing for oral arguments before these, these really intimidating circuit courts or even before the Supreme Court, trying to anticipate which questions you're going to ask. Well, that was a good one. Well, don't most people in West Virginia have guns, Mr. So-and-so? Well, well, yeah, I guess they do. So that made its way into the court case. The officers, lawyers admitted that most people in West Virginia have guns. The court continued, if the officers are correct, then the knock and announce requirement would never apply in the search of anyone's home who legally owned a firearm. That's right. If just having a firearm in your house means that the police can get a no-knock warrant, then I guess it's like it used to be in West Virginia. All search and seizure uh, or all search warrant executions in West Virginia would all have to be no-knock warrants because everybody has a gun in their house. Um, but that's not the law. And fortunately, the court found um, that it is not the law. And they, th they said, we think a reasonable police officer would have known that guns did not fire themselves and that a justifiable fear for an officer's safety must include a belief, not simply that a gun may be located within a home, but that someone inside the home might be willing to use it. While in some cases a no-knock entry may prevent violence, in others an announced an unannounced entry may provoke violence in supposed self-defense by a surprised resident. Now that came out of a United States Supreme Court case called uh, Hudson v. Michigan from 2006. And that's exactly what I worry about is innocent people being caught up in a no-knock entry by by law enforcement and it's the the wrong address or they've got incorrect facts and you have no not no uh no one knocking on the door knowing announcing who they were and you're not going to have uh lights from a police cruiser outside something where you wake up and you say oh yeah all right the police are outside say so you just have somebody bust down your door somebody just dressed in black maybe a shadow comes at you, maybe you see that they are armed and you fire, not thinking that you were firing at police. Now, I know this has happened numerous times around this country, and that's the big danger with no-knock entries, with no-knock warrants, is because it, it's, it's sufficient to cause a, a normal person 
to think that they're being burglarized or, or they're about to be killed by criminals. And I think that is the the claim or the defense from in, in the Breonna Taylor case is that they didn't know that it was the police coming in. And when they shot at the police, they thought that they were shooting at armed intruders. Now, I don't know what the specific facts are, whether whether those have been completely fleshed out. But, you know, if you are going to if you're not going to tell them you're the police, it very well might create more uh, a dangerous situation. It might create a shooting where there wouldn't have been a shooting. So if we're going to have no-knock warrants or no-knock entries, which we do, you know, it it needs to be, as the court in this Balot v. Edwards case is stating, it has to have a thri- high, excuse me, a high threshold, very high threshold. You know, something like you have particularized information that this is a dangerous person, very dangerous person, and that they're very likely to kill police officers who come in there. That could be somebody who has made the threat, like, if you try to arrest me, I'll kill you. But it, and it, it can't, the gray area is where if they just say, well, this person is believed to have have dealt drugs and generally, generally people who deal drugs are, you know, have firearms and also use those firearms, um, in violent ways. I still don't think that's enough because if you look at this other case that the uh, court in the fourth circuit discussed United States versus Singleton, you really need facts that are particular to this individual. So an example or examples of why this person is logically going to respond violently because they responded violently in the past. And specific um, information that can be provided under oath to the judge of why this person is basically armed and dangerous in that situation. And still, I I would argue that it's still not a good idea because what happens when you got the wrong address? That's when you have the really tragic cases. I'd rather not see that person arrested inside their home than I would see one innocent family involved in one of these situations. Because what what else could you do if somebody is dangerous enough to where you need to perform a no-knock entry in their home? What else could you do? You could catch the person outside their home. So, I mean, if you're if you're going to take down a, a cartel guy, are you going to do it from his bunker where he probably has belt-fed machine guns trained on the door? Or are you going to get him when he's on the road somewhere in between point A and point B? Again, that's not my job, but analyzing these things when it's a screw-up is my job. So... If you're planning something like that, that's, that would be my advice is if you need a no-knock warrant, is there any other option other than going inside the home? Something to think about. All right, so if these officers were correct, then the knock-and-announce requirement would never apply 
in West Virginia, basically. So guns don't shoot themselves. And if an officer is in fear for his safety, in order for it to be justifiable, it needs to be particularized and include a belief, not simply that there are guns within the home, but that the person inside the home would be willing to use it. So it could be history of criminal behavior, but the analysis is really totality of the circumstances, as many things are in these civil rights cases. So you look at all the facts together, not just the person's criminal history, not just the presence of a firearm, but all the, the facts combined together. The bare fact, at least in the Fourth Circuit right now, that somebody has a concealed weapon permit is not itself alone to justify a no-knock entry. Of course, all of this is assuming that you have a real process to begin with. Here in West Virginia, I believe almost all the warrants are issued by magistrate judges. Now, almost all of magistrate judges in West Virginia like other you know, traditionally Southern states, are not, are not lawyers. They, they could just be anybody who was elected to the position. Now, in North Carolina, where I worked as a prosecutor, even the misdemeanors were tried by what they called district court judges. And those were judges who were elected, but they were lawyers. And therefore, when you're arguing search and seizure motions or whatever the case may be, you're, you're arguing to somebody who has been involved in the practice of law, they've been to, to law school, um, it, and so on and so forth. And West Virginia, a lot of times you're just arguing to uh, a state trooper who retired at best, who has a lot of knowledge of the law. Of course, it's skewed in one direction. Or you might be talking to somebody who who just w was a butcher before that. Now, the, the reality of that is that, that it's hit or miss. You, you have some people who, who are respect the constitution and, and do their best to respect the constitutional rights of, of the individual. Then you have others that couldn't care less. And, you know, I would say in, in some of the, the, the counties I've been in, I mean, you'll, you'll have, you'll have the, the retired police officers who, who uh, I mean, they're, they, they'll, they will have never said anything, no to anything that came across their desk in some, in some situations. At least that's how, how it appears to me. So you have, those, you have those people making the decisions about whether or not, not only to enter your house, but whether they can bust down the door silently in the dark with no warning that they're, they're the police because we have a knock and announce rule for a reason. And the sad thing is, in a lot of these cases is, for instance, in the, the elderly gentleman that I represented, had they just knocked on the door and said, you know, Mr. Mr. Wine, um, you know, we're looking for this, this guy who used to work for you. Have you seen him? He, he would have lived. He would have lived, but he died. And there wasn't a whole lot we could do about it because they had a warrant. So it was only the fact that they 
didn't knock and announce that we were able to really sue them. All right, so um, some of the questions. When in doubt, choose liberty. That's exactly right. And, you know, why not just side with the citizen instead of, instead of siding with the government? When in doubt, we should always choose liberty. But that, that's not the way it goes usually. Um, magistrates do not have the, the authority to issue warrants. Well, I'm not sure what state you're in, but in, in West Virginia, they do. Now, you, you may be talking about federal magistrates. I'm, I'm not sure. I don't practice federal criminal law, just, just on the civil side. In West Virginia, though, magistrates do issue warrants. In fact, they issue almost, almost all of them. I don't know if I've ever seen one issued by a circuit court judge. Um, isn't law enforcement officers, are law enforcement officers always in fear of their safety? And there's kind of the, there's kind of the catch 22, or I don't know, maybe it's a rock and a hard place that we find ourselves in today is that as you have all this Antifa and Black Lives Matter stuff going on all over the country and attacks against innocent police officers, what is the result going to be, the logical result going to be, other than to keep them on their guard 24-7? Um, and I, I wouldn't blame any, anyone for doing that. But what's that going to result in? Where you have police officers who constantly think that they're going to get assassinated, they are going to be on a higher alert than they would have been before. Therefore, more innocent people may end up getting shot. And therefore, innocent people who get shot by law enforcement officers are also going to be higher in number. So really, the, the, the whole, the whole uh, nationwide, the whole movement against, you know, to vilify law enforcement as being racist all over the country it's it's a lose lose for everybody because it sucks for the police and it sucks for the innocent people who end up getting shot by the police because the police are paranoid now and then it sucks for the the, the people riding because it just creates a crappy situation for themselves because whether they defund the police and and give their communities over to the criminals or whether they end up getting more police and, and higher militization of the police or more aggressive police because they're paranoid now. So that there are ways to fix the problem, but siding with the Marxists and allowing them to use you to attempt to destroy this country is not the answer to it. Uh, Charles, we need legislation to fix this. I've thought about this since I read the story of the flashbang on a toddler. Yes, so states can always provide more protection than federal constitutional law. There's, you can't provide less protection. So states couldn't say that police officers never have to knock and announce under any circumstances. And that's state law. Um, 
No, because the federal constitution restricts government. It restricts police from what they can and can't do, even if authorized by by their state legislatures. So that would be declared unconstitutional. But states can always go above and beyond and provide you even more freedom than the federal constitution provides. So West Virginia, by legislation, could outlaw no-knock warrants. So that could be done. Um, and I think that's a... The thing about West Virginia is, as I explained, they weren't doing them anyways here. And I don't know if I've heard heard of any any of these tragic cases which have occurred in West Virginia with no-knock warrants because I haven't heard of any no-knock warrants still being issued. I'm sure, I'm sure they have. I'm sure they've happened. Um, but I haven't heard of them. But I think legislation would be a good idea so long as it creates more freedom and not just more laws to understand and more laws to, to create more, more um, criminal violations. Uh, Supreme Court has ruled Americans may defend themselves with arms from unlawful arrests. Well, there's no doubt that there have been cases where people have defended themselves by shooting at the police who were executing no-knock warrants inside their home. I believe one was a a military veteran out west. I I don't recall the, the particulars of it. But it is a, I mean, there is a, a defense to that. And it has to do with, you know, the, the objective reasonability of, of what you knew and, and um, what you were confronted with. And that's the whole point of no-knock warrants. They just create that situation where maybe there wasn't a problem. You know, they knock on the door and, and you know, they would have let you in. And now they think that you're somebody invading their house and you have a shootout really for no good reason. It happened in Houston. I believe it. It's happened all over the place. Uh, war on drugs is a complete failure. That, that's absolutely, absolutely the case. And you know, still this year in my little town here, they're flying the black helicopters over last month. I mean, really, and now they they have a difficult time with it. So I'm told because they've legalized the growing of hemp or even mar- medical marijuana in West Virginia, but mostly hemp. There's there's hemp fields, not a lot of them, but but even in my little county, there there are several hemp fields, and so they that you can't tell the difference from the sky. The only way to tell the difference between lawfully grown hemp and unlawfully grown. Uh, marijuana that they're going to land the helicopter for and and arrest you for felonies. It it takes a scientific test to tell the difference. Now, in reality, what they do is they have a list of the registered hemp fields, and then when they spot marijuana, they look at their list and they're like, "Oh, that and that's hemp," and they move on. They're like, "Oh, that's hemp, that's hemp," and finally they find one that's not on their list, and that must be marijuana. So they're still doing that. In the past, I don't know, maybe it was seven or eight years ago, I, my wife comes out of the house, she hears a noise, and there's a black helicopter right there hovering over our house. She can see the guy's face, 
she can see the the goggles. He has some sort of thermal goggles staring right at her. That really scared her to the point that she she was crying. And she because it's not like it even said police on it. It's just a black, literally a black helicopter, and it's not a conspiracy. I got video of it of the same helicopter. And then the neighbors, the neighbor's wife, he's he's at work. He was a school teacher at the time, different neighbor now. And she was scared out of her mind because this thing was low. And finally, and they're all over our neighborhood. And at the time, it was really mostly, it was a lot of elderly people, including one uh, former POW World War II war hero. They're, they're just hovering over their backyards. So the house across the street, they ended up landing somewhere. And then here, here comes the, here comes the caravan of cop cars. They descend upon the, one of my next door neighbors, the house across the street. They descend on his property and they had seen like five or six tomato plants in pots. It had tomato and, and, um, the owner of the house was, was a, uh, was a first responder was a, a paramedic, was a paramedic. And, uh, and they had to call, they had, they got excited, but they had to call it off because it was just a couple tomato plants. And they probably had what, three or four police cruisers there. And I, I don't know how many cops and I don't know what the helicopter cost. Probably, probably nothing in real money because it's just taxpayer money that, that they're using. But I mean, all this over marijuana. I mean, really, really, I mean, what, I mean, who cares at this point? Who cares at this point? I'd, I'd say more people have have been, uh, well, anyways, marijuana is another video. Who polices the police? Nobody. You're, you're, look, you're looking at, you're looking at them, really. Um, no, I mean, there, there are, each state could be different. And Thomas, that's your question. I think, see, that's what I see as the problem nationwide is a lack of accountability. It's not that there's some secret racist conspiracy where even inner city police departments who are 50 or 60% black are racist against themselves and they just want to kill black people or beat them up or put them in prison. I mean, that's absurd. The reality is, is that there's a lack of accountability nationwide. We've created a, a police state with thousands and thousands and thousands of criminal laws. We've, we've imprisoned a larger percentage of our population of, of any color than really any other country in the world of our size, at least there is a lack of accountability and there are bad apples. There's going to be bad apples in any group of people, um, including doctors, uh, lawyers, journalists, um, CPAs, CEOs, there's always, always going to be bad apples. The important thing is, is to police yourself, to get rid of the bad apples, to preserve your integrity, especially the criminal justice system without, without, um, without legitimacy, you have nothing. And there, there's across the country, there's, there has been for a long period of time, a lack of accountability. And that just causes this entire problem to fester. And that is what has caused 
and allowed the the race pimps and the Marxists to to help push it along. But the big thing, in my opinion, is a lack of accountability. But is the let's see, is the warrant lawful? I'm not sure which warrant you you were you you were talking about. Um, usually, when the when the warrant is not lawful, is when it can be proven that the 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 law enforcement officer who applied for it intentionally lied to get it. You know, which unfortunately allows for the situation that you can accidentally lie or accidentally provide false information. So you got to really screw up a a warrant for it to be unlawful on its face. But as I said, it happens. I just had, I just had a case this year where, where it happened. Let's see. Michael Wilson, would it be difficult, would be difficult to get legislation outlawing no knock warrants passed in West Virginia, but maybe more stringent requirements or defined higher threshold. West Virginia has a, a very conservative population and it's difficult enough to try to prove a civil rights violation. Um, even where you, you have the evidence. So I can see where that would be difficult in West Virginia, especially now where I think the, a lot of people in West Virginia are, are, being more supportive of the police in general, based on what they see happening across the country. And, and that, that is completely understandable. I mean, how many videos have I made where I defend the police when my job was supposed to be really the opposite because there are a lot of problems out there and I'm trying to focus on the problems, but because where they are getting carried away with this, um, national anti-law enforcement movement, they're hurting, they're hurting everybody. They're not just hurting the police, but they're hurting, they're hurting themselves. They're hurting the people that they claim to be, to protect. So the, who are they? Black lives matter. Well, say young black men, who are, who is going to bear the brunt of, of all the rioting and the misinformation campaign that's taken place across the country? Like I said, you're either going to have more police now who are more paranoid and more uh, quick to, to defend themselves than you had before. So the problem hasn't been solved. You've just aggravated the problem and you've divided people along racial lines. So th this is absolutely the wrong way to have, to have, have gone about it. So I, I don't know, you know, I don't know that, that West Virginia um, that legislation outlawing no-knock warrants is is really necessary, but I think even better than legislation is um, reforming the the way that you know law enforcement internal policies in West Virginia, which some of them don't have internal policies. But, you know, the state police, definitely, they, they have a statewide policy. They do their own thing. And again, I, I cause them to have to learn about the knock and announce requirement. But the other thing that West Virginia could do is really not through legislation, but through the Supreme Court is, like I said, uh, search warrants are signed by magistrates 
and the magistrates use forms provided by the West Virginia Supreme Court. So I actually talked to a couple of the Supreme Court justices. Oh, I think it was back back in February of this year, maybe it was January, about improving those forms because there was just a signature and a date. There was no timestamp at all. And it's all paper. It's not just, it's not something that's electronic that has some sort of timestamp on it. So therefore what, what a dishonest police officer could do is go search without a warrant. And if they find something, then they can, or even if they don't find something, then they go, or if they get caught, then they go get a warrant same day after the fact, get it signed. And you would never know uh, a lawyer looking at it after the fact would never know what came first, the search warrant or the search, because if the search came before the search warrant, you have a presumptively unconstitutional search. You have an illegal search and uh, without a, a timestamp. So I asked the Supreme Court justices, why not? Why not put a little spot for for the time? It would be easy. They put in the date. They sign their name, the magistrates. Why not just put in a time? So that we can see, you know, make sure that one came before the other, because a lot of the public defenders, maybe they, they're not having they're not putting these police officers under oath in criminal cases in every case and saying, by the way, you know, which one did you do first? What time did you get the search warrant? They're, they're not they're not asking those questions necessarily. So why not just put it on the form? What's the harm and and making sure that the individual constitutional rights are are protected? There's no harm in it. Matt Gibby, judges in Raleigh County do no-knock warrantless searches. Well, they they not they did knock at least didn't they? they didn't need to knock they you knew they were there. Uh, Matt, Matt is a, a a client of mine. If you've seen the video of the family court judge out of Raleigh County, West Virginia, searching his house then look it up on my YouTube channel. You'll find it. Matt is the, the federal law enforcement guy whose house was searched by state law enforcement and by a judge. And um, so that, that hopefully will make some, some in interesting precedent one day. Um, again, thanks for, thanks for stopping by Matt. Matt, Matt's a, a great guy. I gotta say he's probably one of my favorite clients I've represented so far. Uh, let's see. Cheryl, explain this. Nothing to see here, folks, but award her family for $12 million for wrongful death. Well, if in in West Virginia, it may not be $12 million it depends who your potential jury pool is. So if they've made it this big racial case, if it's in a, a judicial district where you might have a lot of black people on the jury, they could throw the entire courthouse at you if it got to jury trial. So I think they were anticipating that was going to happen. I'm not. I, I, I'm not sure what the statistics were on the potential jury pool in that jurisdiction, but if you would put them in a conservative West Virginia jury looking at the same case, they may not have offered twelve thousand dollars. Well, I'm sure they would have offered twelve thousand dollars, but they might not have offered a hundred thousand dollars if looking at a a conservative. 
um, jury pool of of older West Virginia folks, and that that is a that's a real issue that I've been fighting my entire career is, you know, all we can do is take this to a jury. It's very difficult to get a conservative jury to rule against a police officer and for another individual who may have had some cause to encounter the police officer. Now, they did have a, an arguably innocent person. Now, I don't know whether she was or not. It, it seems that there was evidence that she knew that there, that she had her boyfriend was a drug dealer and that she knew about it, maybe participated in it some. You know, that's why they built courthouses. I would think that, that those issues would all need to be decided. Um, but, you know, generally where you have an innocent plaintiff, cases are going to be worth a whole lot more. And where you have a defendant or a defendant police officer who, who can be vilified to a jury as, as a racist. And uh, I mean, you, you could pump the number way up. So that's, that's really, that's really where they come up with those numbers. Unless, you know, of course there's so much media attention here. Maybe it was some, maybe it was a political decision. I don't know, but generally that's how they come up with those numbers. And it's very rare that there's a, there's a case like that. Now in West Virginia, I mean, they don't even have insurance coverage above, above a million dollars. So that would be just in West Virginia, that would be a policy limits case. They'd probably offer the policy limits of a million dollars. How did the AG of Kentucky choose not to press charges against the officers that killed Brianna? Well, I don't know exactly how, how they, if you're asking me their state constitutional um, hierarchy, I don't know, because the West Virginia attorney general would not be able to tell a county prosecutor in West Virginia not to charge somebody or or uh, what to do. And I guess maybe he didn't do that there. I, for, I think it was a grand jury decision not to indict. In some states, that's very common, or even some counties, that's common, is what they do when there's a police shooting is they put it in front of a grand jury, which is kind of a joke. And they the grand jury comes back with a no true bill, which just means that they're not going to indict. And then they put out a press release stating that the grand jurors um, chose not to indict it after looking at the evidence. So that may or may not, you know, to what extent the attorney general of Kentucky was involved in that, I have no idea. I can tell you that, that in, in West Virginia, that would be in a very infect, effective way of insulating law enforcement from criminal charges in, in such a situation. But grand jury um, proceedings in West Virginia anyways, are there is a court reporter there and you can, under some circumstances, get the transcript after the fact. So while a... Wait, are... Ryan Ipshear, are you the are you the uh, governor of uh, of uh, Kentucky? Anyways, district attorneys now have so much influence on grand juries that, by and large, they could get them to indict a ham sandwich. That's true. I've said that a million times in my career. Um, it, you know, it it doesn't the grand jury protections in our constitution were put there by our founding fathers because it was important at the time. 
for a number of reasons. But fast forward to 2020, they're, they're not important now. The only real good use for them is for getting law enforcement out of trouble. Because here's the problem with, with grand juries in 2020. And say you find out that you get indicted based on some false information and you find out that because you get the transcripts, you get the transcripts, you find out that a police officer went in there and he lied. He intentionally lied and you can prove it. So the case ends up getting dismissed, which, by the way, even if you find a lie in a grand jury transcript, it's still very difficult, almost impossible to get the case dismissed. But you get it dismissed. Then you try to, to sue them. You file a lawsuit for wrongful arrest, for malicious prosecution, whatever the case may be. And guess what happens? It gets dismissed or you lose on summary judgment. You lose because it's inadmissible, whatever the person said before the grand jury. That's pretty much the way it is. It can be used to defeat the criminal charges and and really egregious situations, but they still don't even allow, allow it into um, subsequent civil rights lawsuits for malicious prosecution. Now, sometimes there are ways to, to do some gymnastics around that, but that, I mean, that's a bunch of garbage. But see, they insulate themselves through the grand jury process. If you get arrested at the scene, um, no, no arrest warrant, no indictment, then it's very easy to file a lawsuit because then you just have to prove that there was no probable cause generally. But if you get arrested with a, an, an arrest warrant signed by a judge, then you have to defeat that warrant by showing that there was an intentional, intentional false statements in the warrant. It can be done. But if you get arrested via an indictment, that's almost impossible because everything that was said before that grand jury is completely confidential. And although you might get it, you won't be able to introduce it as evidence or use it as proof. And it will completely insulate the, you know, whoever the bad guy was in that process. And that's, that's a bunch of BS in my opinion. So I'm not sure what really the purpose for having a grand jury is now in 2020. Let's see. I'm sure there's some questions I missed here. Excuse me, Jeff. It's been 20 plus years, but I thought once you got in the first contact, cops had to start to ID themselves or even once through the door. I mean, generally what they do is once they're over the threshold, then they say, you know, police search warrant or something like that. And that's generally that's generally the case. But, you know, I mean, there's there's always three sides to a story. You know, is that true? Because a lot of times the the story from the other side is that they didn't hear it. And, you know, it, maybe there's a flashbang going off or someone screaming or, or you just hear a commotion. I mean, you're, if you wake up out of a dead sleep, maybe you, you didn't hear exactly what was said. But generally, in my experience, that's always, even with a no-knock entry, that's, well, not always, but that that's what 
that's what they they do according to their own policies. Whether that's actually a law or not, I'm I don't want to say one way or the other because I haven't researched that because I haven't encountered it. But I have seen police officers go in completely and and never identify themselves. But that's a different case that's coming up soon, hopefully. Question is, how soundproof is the door? Well, yeah, I mean, that's that's a fact from a particular situation that could come up. If the question is, is if a light knock and announce would be sufficient constitutionally, if it was a big um, soundproof door, I don't know. I, I haven't looked at that. And you, if these people who ask questions like that, you, you'd enjoy law school because that's exactly what you do in like the criminal classes in law school or any kind of classes is the, the professor tells you what the rule is or what this case holding is. And then, so then you want to know, well, what if this, well, what if that? And that's sort of how the process is supposed to take place because you try to think up different scenarios, but in real life, r- rarely do you see those scenarios, but who knows? Ask yourself this, Walker, who shot first, did he have reason? He had no warrants on him, and he has no criminal history. I think that's always that's always a, a good question. And I recently dealt with a, a police shooting case when a warrant was being executed, and it ended in a young kid inside the house being shot to death right in front of his mother. And the, 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 the question that really begs is, 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 is why, why? Okay. If he had a gun, why, why would he shoot the police when the house is surrounded by the police? He knows, he knows that, that he's, I mean, not going to win in a gunfight with, with a house surrounded by law enforcement. Um, why would he, you know, why would he even do that? It, it doesn't, it doesn't, it, it's a question that comes up, believe me, and it can't be answered necessarily by family. And uh, when the person's gone, they can't answer the question. So I've, I've seen that question asked before, and it's compelling to you sometimes to look at those cases and say, yeah, but why would he point a gun at the, at the police? I mean, it's not like he, he had any good reason to, or that he was going to fight his way out of it. I mean, what, you know, maybe, maybe suicide by cop type situation. I don't know, but th- those are always good questions. And that's why, you know, that's why they build courthouses, right? Why does the local chief demand a knock and talk? Is there a difference other than the paper? I don't know specifically to what, what, what um, quote, I guess you're referring to, but as far as a, um, a knock and talk, I think, Knock and talk to me is is when the police come up and they suspect somebody, they don't have a warrant, maybe not enough to get probable cause for a warrant, but just like somebody who's running for office can do, they can go up, knock on the door and, and ask questions. And if they answer, they answer. That's that's what I think a, a knock and talk is is. I mean, if they were referring to a knock and talk as the same thing as a knock and announce, I guess that I guess there wouldn't be any legal significance to that 
if you knock and, and, and announce who you are, I mean, that's the constitutional requirement. Um, sad to say, I was told by law enforcement he doesn't need a no-knock warrant. He will simply articulate a reason to justify entry. Well, I, I don't know. Ex I don't know specifically what's taught, but I, like I said, in dealing with a SWAT team in in West Virginia, the really the the most prestigious of the the law enforcement and the most prestigious agency in the state, they they thought they didn't need no knock warrants at all. They didn't know that there was a constitutional requirement, or they didn't care. So to a certain extent, sadly, that that's probably correct. But if you can prove that there was a no-knock entry, then the requirement remains. No Jetta. All right. Wise words. All right. So I, I think I've... I've uh, I think I've answered most questions here, maybe a couple more. Uh, Thomas, thank you for all you do. Well, thank you for, for saying that. Um, I appreciate that. Uh, Carmen, I've heard speculation that he thought it was Miss Miss Taylor's drug dealing boyfriend breaking in. Well, that you know, this is part of the problem with the the whole war on drugs is, is that, you know, if you're going to sell drugs, if you're going to sell drugs, you know, the likelihood of people breaking into your house goes way up. So it's either, it, it could be the police breaking in. It also, and probably more likely, or other drug dealers or, or, or other criminals breaking into your house for the money or, or for the drugs. So I think that is definitely relevant information if this is, I guess it's not being litigated because she settled or the family settled the civil case and there, there aren't any criminal charges, but definitely, um, you know, to the extent that she may have been involved with the drug dealing boyfriend or been aware of, of the dangers there. I mean, that definitely, I think would have come up now, not everybody who's ended up with a drug dealing boyfriend automatically, automatically deserves to be, you know, have their rights stripped away. I've seen situations where girlfriends of drug dealers, um, you know, I, I had really good explanations for, you know, what they knew and didn't, didn't know, or maybe they were physically and mentally abused and uh, were afraid to, to, to try to get away. I'm not saying I don't know anything about the situation here, but that's again, that's why they build courthouses because I mean, these things, these things can always, always be litigated. There's always three sides to every story, you know, the, the plaintiffs, the defendants, and then the truth. So you never know. Let's see. All right. So I've gone on for about an hour and 27 minutes here. So thanks for watching. Um, I'll probably do another one of these next Monday night. Hopefully I'll do it. I'll get to do another video this week. Like, uh, 
you know, for, for Matt Gibby, maybe he can help me with it. Um, I think there'll be news coming out on that case soon. And that should be an interesting, interesting case. If you haven't seen the family court judge search video where they're searching that guy's house, you can look it up on, on YouTube. It's, it's a bizarre, it's a bizarre case. I don't think you'll see another one like it on the all on uh, all of the YouTube videos that are out there. And it'll be interesting to see what happens. That's for sure. So thanks for watching. Um, remember that freedom is scary and try not to be so scared about it because it shouldn't be scary. In fact, we all should default to allowing each other more freedom. And I think that will solve a lot of the problems that we have more than, than uh, rioting and, and breaking people's stuff will do. Thank <laughs> you.